Now, like I said a little bit earlier, we are closing in on the end of summer. Yes, I know, technically, we have another whole month for you purists, but the kids know. They know, don't you kids, right? They can't fool you with this September 21st kind of stuff. No, we know that summer is winding down, but that also means we're winding down uh, to our end of the study of the book of Micah, our summer study of this minor prophet, and I hope I've demonstrated over the last couple of months that uh, what he has to say is not at all minor. It's not. I mean, yeah, he's talking to people who lived almost 3,000 years ago, but the, the reality of evil and suffering, the, the need for mercy and justice, the, the hope of rescue, these are all really relevant themes for our day as well as for ancient, uh, ancient Israel. Now, this morning, we come to Micah chapter 7, <clears throat> and we're just going to look at the first seven verses of that. We'll tackle the rest of that chapter next Sunday. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Micah 7. If you don't, you can grab one of the blue Bibles in the chair racks. I think Micah 7 is on page 991, and you can listen as I read along. Let's stand as I do that, and we will receive God's Word together with thanksgiving. Let's read Micah chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> so last weekend um, in the baseball season was uh, alumni weekend for the Phillies. Alumni weekend is when all the old baseball stars for the Phillies, they all come back uh, for ceremonies and awards and stuff like that. And one of the guys who was there uh, was Steve Carlton. Now, I remember Steve Carlton from when I was a young kid, and during his, during his heyday, Steve Carlton may have, been, may have been the best pitcher in baseball, dominating left-hander, right? They called him lefty, nasty slider. And I remember some of those years when he was dominant. I was a young kid, but I also remember, and maybe even more clearly because I was a little bit older, I also remember those years on the downside of his peak, right? When he started to slide, when he bounced from team to team, when he was a mere shadow of his, his former glory, well past his his heyday. Well, Jerusalem and Judah are a little like that in the book of Micah, on the downside of the peak. The heyday, so it seems, is long past. But for them, it's actually worse, right? Because in the case of Judah, they don't just get, get old and bad at pitching baseballs. They get evil and they get rebellious. That's what's happening to them. And as a result, all of God's people, all of them, we're going to have to face the consequences. Now, I told you last week, because chapter 6 is a little bit of a downer, I told you last week that it gets better in chapter 7, and it does. But we're still at the beginning of chapter 7 in that phase of facing the consequences. That's still where we are in the beginning of this chapter. And the consequences of injustice 
are not pleasant for anyone, even if you're not the main perpetrator of injustice. So what I want to do is explain the text, of course, uh, but I also want to take uh, a little bit of time in the midst of that to go and think about a couple of applications as to what this means and how this applies to us as we think about God's judgment being brought against an ancient people thousands and thousands of years ago. What does that mean for us? Now, it's clear that this text that we just read is about the adversity and the opposition faced by God's people during this period of judgment and suffering that God is it has them in to a certain extent and will lead them into even more of as time goes on. And there's two headings that I have in your bulletin. To full disclosure, I'm borrowing the headings from Dale Ralph Davis. Right? Any commentator, anyone recognizes that there's two main sections in the text that we read. There's verses 1 to 6 and then there's verse 7. Right? There's a clear kind of diversion, right? a division there. Right? Because verse 7 starts but. So he says a bunch of stuff in verses 1 to 6 and then um, but verse 7 is, is different. It's a contrast. So there's two main sections of the text. Now how you put the headings on them, that's, that's kind of, you know, it's, that's your own decision. But I, I kind of like Dr. Davis's headings the best and I can't improve them. So that's, that's what's in your bulletin. Right, look at them there. Verses 1 to 6, heading number 1, what we may face. Right, when this happens, when, when judgment, when hardship, when, when suffering comes, this is what we might face. And verse 7 is heading 2, where we must stand. Right, so in the midst of what we are facing, this is where we must stand. Two headings. Now let's start with a heading that covers the majority of the verses that we read. What we must face. Verses 1 to 6. This is Micah's lament song. Right, starts with the word woe to me, right? classic kind of lament language. It's a review of everything that God's people may face during the time of judgment that God is bringing because of the sin in Judah. And these words are probably written by Micah pre-700 AD. Micah knows what the Assyrian armies have done in the north, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of Israel, the Samaria, and, and, and God is saying that this is going to come to Jerusalem, to Judah in the south, the same as it came to Samaria in the north and he says these are the things you're going to have to face these are the things you're going to have to deal with in this broken world that is so messed up by sin and I don't think it's actually super hard for us to see the parallel to our day with with some of this so let's go through it what do the people of God face in a world of hardship that is upon them and is is coming well loneliness is one thing that's what you see in verses one to two Right? Now, you have to get the imagery of verse 1 with the fruit being gathered and the grapes being harvested. You kind of have to get what that means because when harvesting was done in ancient Israel, the expectation is that there would be leftovers. Right? Because, in, in fact, it was the law. In Leviticus 19, you can check it out later, um, the gleaning laws are explained. The gleaning laws were kind of like the social safety net for the poor in ancient Israel. God specifically commanded the Israelites to leave behind some of what they harvested for the poor and the needy to pick up later. Now, but what Micah's saying here is the grapes have been harvested, but there's no cluster to eat. There's no first ripe fig that my soul desires. What's that mean? It means that there's nothing left after the harvest. All right, well, the vineyard is Israel, and Micah is searching for the remnant, searching for what's left over, searching for the fruit, the true believer that's, that, that's left behind after the, after the harvest clears away the, uh, the, 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 the evil. But but there's nothing. He feels alone. Right, that's what verse 2, certainly the first part of verse 2, makes, makes clear. There is no one upright among mankind. Now, that's a pretty clear statement, right? Even if you don't get all the, uh, the, the imagery of the fruit and the vine and the harvesting and all that, right? Micah's being pretty clear here. He looks around, woe to me, there is no one upright uh, amongst mankind. Now, this is a theological truism, just that statement taken by itself, right? 
right? Us, us Presbyterians, we Presbyterians, we learn this, we learn this early, we, we learn it often, total depravity and all that, we get our doctrine straight, and that's true, right? Kids, you might remember the, um, uh, the, the Bible alphabet memory verses, right? You got A, right? What's A? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23, right? That's how it goes. That's A, right? We learn that. That's true, right? There's none who are morally perfect. We all fall short of God's standard and need his forgiveness. But when Micah says there's no one upright among mankind, he doesn't mean that there, he's not, he's not talking in that kind of sense. He's saying that there's no faithful followers of God to be found. At the word for the godly, the godly, that you see at the beginning of verse 2, it's the Hebrew word hasid, and it's linked to chesed, which is what we talked about last week. Remember, chesed is, is God's covenant kindness, his long-suffering, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, his chesed. And, and the godly, the chesed, are those who respond to God's covenant love with their own love and obedience towards that God, right? They are, more literally, the covenant people. If Hesed is the, the love and kindness of the covenant God, then the, the godly are those who are God's covenant people. Well, Micah can't find any. He's alone, or so he thinks, right? And that's certainly something that we can face, a feeling that we can have in, the, in our world at times. Maybe it's in your office, maybe it's in your school, maybe it's on your your sports team, maybe it's in your own family to a large degree. No one shares your faith, that's what it feels like. And you look around, you can't find very many covenant people, people who believe in God's promises like you do. Now that can hurt, and there's a pain associated with that that we need to, 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 to get through, but there are worse things that we can face than being alone as a follower of God. The opposition can be more direct, that's what you see in the second part of verse two and through the beginning of verse four danger and direct opposition to the people of God right look at the end of verse 2 we see evil waiting patiently verse 3 right we see people who look like they actually they actually practice evil they take their evil seriously they want to do it well right it says they their hands are on what is evil to do it well right it's like they hit the gym every day to get the evil muscles really big Right? They're out early on the field, putting in the work, so that when game time comes, they're not just ready to do some evil, they're ready to do it well. And the evil they're doing is some of the things that we've seen Micah talk about before. Right? You've got corrupt leaders demanding bribes and payoffs. We've got powerful people abusing the weak, and, and they weave it together. Did you see that? Right? All the different parts, they weave it together. It's structural. Right? They work together. The police are corrupt. The judges are corrupt. Everyone's corrupt. The best of them, it says in verse 4, is like a thorn hedge, right? They just get in the way. That's the best case. The best case is they get in the way. But at worst, they're scheming. They're weavers of evil. So we have to be prepared to face that, right? We might face that here in America, right? Certainly people are facing it, Christians around the world today. Now, I'm a general believer in our local community here that in general, most people, even when they don't share my Christian faith, tend to respect it. That's usually true in my interactions right here most of the time. But that doesn't mean that I believe that everyone is basically good, right? Remember theological point, right? Bible verse A, all have sinned. It doesn't mean that there aren't any weavers of evil out there. In fact, there are. There's lots of them even in our own world, opposing Christianity and its teaching. We see the debates over policies in our schools. We'll continue to see lots of those things in various spheres of life, and it shouldn't surprise us when it comes. So we need to be prepared to face them. 
We also need to be prepared to endure the consequences of God's judgment, right? Even if we aren't among the weavers of evil ourselves, we still live in that same world. Michael wasn't really alone. He wasn't, he wasn't really all by himself among the godly, but he and any of the other covenant people that were left in Judah were going to experience pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of God's punishment and judgment that was going to come on the entire nation. They were going to be there too. Verse 4 says, the day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Here it is. The prophets, like Micah, they were, they were like watchmen on the, on, the, on the city wall who looked out for the enemies as they, were, as they were advancing against the city, and they saw them. Well, the prophets are like the watchmen. They see the coming of God's judgment. They're announcing it. We need to be prepared to face it, to live in a world where that may occur. Now, the last thing we need to face is the social anarchy that results when suffering and judgment comes. All right, look at verses 5 and 6. This is pretty scary, but this happens even around the world today. Can't trust your neighbor, can't trust your friends. Verse 5, family relationships fall apart. Verse 6, those in your own house can sometimes seem as if they're your enemy. Christians who lived under communist regimes can testify to that, but it doesn't have to, be, doesn't have to just be that, that big and that grand. It can, be in your own, it can be in your own home where those that you feel like you should be able to trust the most are actually working against you. That's what it might be like. That's, where God, that's what God's people must be prepared to face. And it all roots back, remember, to the rebellion of God's people against God's law, their own sin against God's commands. The suffering at some level, in other words, is always self-inflicted because we live in a world that has to bear the consequences of a world that we have made. Now, before we move to the second heading, I want to think out loud with you for a minute about a question that actually came up, and a number of you have raised it over the last couple of months as we've been talking about the culture of Israel and Judah and injustice and judgment, and, and the question is this, what does God say about the injustice in our world today, and how much of this promise of judgment applies to us? In other words, should we read 21st century America in here and say that God's talking about us in other words can God be giving us the same warnings here in our day with the same promised judgments if we don't listen right that's the question and I think that's an appropriate question it does come up you ought to read that and say hmm what about me and I think the answer to that is is yes maybe with some important explanations to go along with it right so let me say let me let me let me mention them first we need we do need to be careful not to confuse ancient Israel with modern America. There's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the two. America's a great country. It's been a blessed country. But you can't take everything that God says about ancient Israel and draw a straight line and conclude that it's a one-to-one -one correspondence or application with, with America, right? Israel was a political nation, but it was a unique political nation in the history of God's redemptive plan. One where he gave them promises and used that nation to guard and protect those promises until such a time when that covenant promise, always intended for the world, would explode beyond a single nation to all nations. So we just need to be careful of the arrogance that subtly and subconsciously kind of assumes that I couldn't take Micah to, to Japan or to Australia or to Ghana or to El Salvador. And I couldn't preach it to them because, well, it's really not about them, it's about America. It's not. There's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. This is, this is applicable all over the world. So don't err on the one side by overly conflating Israel with modern America. Now, on the other hand, right, there's always another hand. Be careful not to dismiss, then, the warnings that still apply. In other words, try the shoe on. 
Because if it fits, well, then maybe, maybe we should wear it. Right? Because God's hatred of evil and injustice are never limited to just one historical nation, time, or place. Whenever the weak are taken advantage of, wherever people are cheated, wherever leaders abuse their authority, wherever God's law is treated as irrelevant or optional or simply a joke, wherever and whenever those things occur, God is displeased. It makes him angry. And like we talked about, we want him to be. Right? We don't want a God who looks on abuse and injustice and is just indifferent. We want it to bother him. So what that means, to be more specific to our situation, is that when God sees migrants taken advantage of by, by, by corrupt coyotes who promise them passage across a border, take their money, and then leave them to die in the desert, it bothers him. When he sees personal convenience justify the legalized killing of unborn children, the disabled, and the elderly, it bothers him. When he sees the homeless and the addicted stepped over and ignored, whether it's in Maui, in West Virginia, or in Asbury Park, it bothers him. When he sees children and teenagers being convinced that their bodies are mistakes to be altered rather than gifts to be celebrated, it bothers him. And so we can't discount God's ability and God's sovereign right to hold individuals and institutions or even nations accountable for their rebellion. Now certainly there's some precedent for thinking like that in our own history. That's what Abraham Lincoln thought about the Civil War. Now I know Abraham Lincoln didn't always get all of his theology perfectly straight, but he knew a lot of Bible. And he could connect some dots. And he clearly saw that the American Civil War, at least in large part, related to the sin of American slavery. That's what he thought. He couldn't have stated it more clearly than he did in his second inaugural address. You know, the inaugural, inaugural address, that's what the president gives when he assumes office. Well, his second one, when he started his second term, he quoted Jesus in Matthew 18, 7, when Jesus pronounced a prophetic woe upon all those who would create an environment where sin would flourish. He said, the one who is the cause of that sin will be held accountable. That's what Jesus said, and Lincoln quoted him. And then Lincoln attributed that, he applied it to the civil war that they were then involved with. He said, if God wills, if it's God's will that this terrible war continues until all the wealth that has been accumulated by the slaveholders 250 years of injustice until all that wealth is spent and if he wills that that fighting continues quoting here from Lincoln until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword if he wills that then Lincoln says then as it was said 3,000 years ago so still it must be said Psalm 19 the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether so he made the link He's saying that he believed the Civil War was, in part at least, a judgment on America, North and South, for the sin of slavery. Now, even Lincoln was smart enough to hedge a little. He says, if this is what God is doing, then we must accept that the Lord's judgments are true and righteous altogether. And that's where the humility comes in and where we have to be really, really careful, right? Because we look at slavery, we look at the Civil War, and that makes some sense, perhaps, because, oh, yeah, of course, all right, that, that kind of link. But other people try it with contemporary events, and you do have to be careful. You do have to be humble when you try to say, I know exactly what God's doing. All right, for example, remember the claims about Hurricane Katrina in 2005, right, that almost sunk New Orleans, right? People said it was a, it was a judgment upon the excesses of, of, of the Mardi Gras culture, all the, the drinking and the partying and the sinning that goes on in New Orleans. Now, it could be. I don't know. It would certainly be a little bit ironic since the French Quarter was one of the areas that was spared and the rest of the city was what was submerged, but I don't know. What about 9-11, 
right? And the people from different political sides who said that, that it was God's judgment on America for consumerism, materialism, imperialism, or whatever-ism. Right? What about the man born blind in John chapter 9? Disciples thought they figured out someone must have sinned, uh, Jesus. It was either him or his parents. Somebody must have sinned. Who was it? Right? You have to be careful. Because God's not, a, he's not an impersonal karma. He's not the bad mojo. Ooh. He's a personal, loving, sovereign, and just God who guides and directs everything that comes to pass for the glory of his name and the good of his people. So when something happens, from war to natural disaster to unexpected injury or illness in your own life, don't be so arrogant to assume that you can figure out the one thing that God is doing through this. Because it's never ever one thing. It's everything that happens. And everything that happens, God is doing a million things all at the same time. He's God. He can do that. All right, there's lots more to say, but those are a few thoughts. Move on to heading number two. That's what we may have to face, right? Now, what do we do when we face it? That's verse seven, where we must stand. Read this again, verse seven. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Right? Now see how Micah is contrasted with the, with the evil leaders here. But as for me, right, he's taken a stand. He's willing to be different. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Do you see the confidence? Micah's a realist, right? See verses one to six. He's a realist, but he's not a cynic. There's a difference. And he's not gonna play the, well, if you, can, you can't beat him, just join him game. No, he's gonna, he's gonna rebel. As for me, I'm gonna stand. Now, it, he's not surrendering to despair or depression, right? And sometimes just simply that, just a refusal to despair is the most powerful form of action that you can take, right? There's a lot that can be taken away from us in this world. But our confidence in the character and the promises of God, that can't be taken away. It can only be surrendered. And Micah refuses to surrender it. He knows that God has not abandoned his people. Right? So he's just going to settle in. He's going to wait for the rescue. I'll just sit down right here. It's going to be coming sometime. Right? He knows that if God is God, then the unjust will not have the final word. See, whoever has the final word, that's the God. That's the one who's ultimately in charge, the one with the final word. And Micah knows that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, will speak last. He's going to have the last word. And so he'll just wait patiently and confidently until that happens. But where does that confidence come from in our lives? Right? And what does that really look like? Remember we said that God in the midst of suffering, struggle, judgment, pain, remember we said that he's never just doing one thing, right? Remember I just said that? He's doing a million different things and he's doing it all at the same time. So what that means is that the fire of God's judgment that destroys his enemies is the same fire that refines and purifies his friends, the godly. The covenant people, not the perfect people, remember verse A, right? Not the perfect people, but the godly people, the covenant people. The same fire that destroys his enemies purifies his friends. Now, both experience the fire, both are there, both on this earth. The hurricane blows, the towers topple, the fire comes, the just and the unjust. But here's the point. The fire of God's judgment has multiple purposes, right? It, it consumes that which is perishable, but it refines that which it will last, Right? Going to have cake after the service, right? I, I got the Calvary tablecloth on the table out front. I am almost certain 
after we cut all the cake on top of this tablecloth, that the tablecloth is going to have stains on it. It's going to need to be cleansed. Right? Now, what if I, to separate the impurities from the tablecloth, took it home and put it in my fire pit? Right? What's going to happen? I'm going to burn off that icing. Right? What's going to happen? I'll burn up the icing, all right, but I'll also burn up the, everything else, too. The tablecloth will be consumed. Right? That's what happens that's what happens for things that won't last. Now, what happens when a steel company puts metallurgical coal in an oven, puts it on fire? What happens? Metallurgical coal is filled with all kinds of impurities, but if you're going to use it, you've got to get them out, right? But you can't throw metallurgical coal in the laundry and wash it. You've got to throw it in a big furnace. You've got to cook it till it's really, really hot, until all the impurities burn away, and then what you're left with is pure carbon, and that you can use to make steel, something that'll last. See, back to you and me and Judah. God's people are intended to last. Israel, God's covenant people, today expressed in the church of Jesus Christ, is something that will last for eternity. And so it can't be destroyed by the fire, only refined. The same fire that destroys the impurities, the same fire cleanses and purifies his people so that we become something stronger than we were before. Which means that you never actually know whether your moment of greatest testing, whether the moment of the fire is actually going to be your moment of greatest witness to the goodness of God. Right? This moment for Judah, this great fire that they were enduring, right? it seems pretty bleak. It would have been pretty bleak for Micah, right? for sure. Right? Judgment. But that verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. It's a cry of confidence in the midst of the fire. Right? That God is refining, that God can be trusted. And you know, they can be some of the most powerful moments. It's so tempting to look at the days of David and Solomon as Israel's heyday. What a great time to be an Israelite. Right? Micah might have said, I wish I could have been an Israelite then. Right, the heyday of political power, the, the, the heyday of military might, the, the heyday of religious faithfulness. But that heyday, that was not Micah's day. And you don't get to choose your heyday. And I don't know, but I think Micah's words here in verse 7 are purer, more powerful, more impactful because they come not at the glory days, but they come in the midst of the fire. Now what that means is that maybe your heyday at least in the eyes of others who are looking at you, isn't always when you think it will be. Right? You want it to come when you're strong, when you're active, when you're in your prime, when you're at your peak. But God's ways don't always work like that. Let me show you what I mean. Calvary's birthday, right? Many of you knew a great woman in Calvary's history, Julia Keck. Many of you knew Julia. Now, from what I've heard, in her heyday, Julia was a powerful force for the Lord. Now, she wasn't a founding member, but when, this, when, the, when the church's first ex real pastor, extended pastor, when the church's pastor resigned in 1965 after serving for almost a decade, the church was at the brink. Right? The presbytery actually voted to close the church. They didn't see it as a going concern. They didn't see a future for the, the work. And three women, Edith Eppel, Dorothy Regenthal, and Julia Keck, maintained the church praying, keeping up the property, and petitioning the presbytery over and over and over again to give the church another shot to help them find a pastor. That was Julia. 
when you see the picture, if you've ever seen the picture of the groundbreaking that was in the newspaper, the groundbreaking for this property, right? The, the picture was in the newspaper. There were two people that had the, shovel, that had the shovel for the shovel ceremony, right? One was Pastor Craig, very appropriate. The other was Julia Keck, Julia in her heyday. But you know, that's not how I knew her. Right? By the time I arrived here in 2018, Julia was, she was homebound. Her, her, her health was failing. She was only in this building twice that I know of after I arrived. Once for the wedding of Pastor Craig's daughter, once for the Christmas Eve service 2018, that first year I was here. And after that, her health made it impossible for, for her to leave her, leave her home. Based on what many of you might remember, her heyday was past. But you know what? In my visits to her in the months before her death, in her home and in the hospital, I got to see a different heyday maybe a more significant one because life got significantly harder for her. See, when your mobility, when your freedom are taken away, right, where, where will you turn then? What will the fire reveal then? Something lasting? Or will your faith vanish like a tablecloth in the fire? Julia grew stronger. Right? And for a still young-ish pastor, to hold the hand of a frail saint and hear her testify to the goodness of God in her life and to hear her praise him with lungs that at their end were gasping for breath. To praise him then, not on a Sunday morning when you're healthy and 25 years old and you're going to the beach later, right? But to say then with Micah, but as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. To say that then, let me tell you, I think I saw the heyday. In the supreme irony of how God measures heydays, that was Julia at her prime and peak. And listen, the confidence of Julia can be your confidence when you put your faith and your trust in this God who is the God of my salvation. Right? When Jesus was born, an angel took Joseph to name, uh, told Joseph to name him Jesus. Right, because he was the one who was going to save their people from, the, from, the, from their sins. Right? He was the embodied salvation that Micah is looking forward to. When he says, I'm going to wait for the God of my salvation, Jesus was the one who was going to do that salvation. He was the one who was going to save the people from their sins. But that salvation, remember, was not achieved during what even his own disciples of his own time would have called Jesus' heyday. It wasn't the political triumph moment like the people saw with David. It wasn't at the height of religious spectacle like the people saw with Solomon. And if you would ask the disciples at the moment of his arrest and the moment of his crucifixion, I'm sure all of them might have said, you should have seen him when. You should have seen him when he healed the guy who was born blind. You should have seen him when he fed the 5,000. Boy, they, those were the days. You should have seen him when he did the mic drop with the Pharisees when they tried to trap him. Man, that was the heyday, but it wasn't. It was on Calvary. It was on a cross. It was when things looked the bleakest. It was when Jesus stepped into the fire for you. He took the judgment. The world seemed all wrong, and as Jesus was gasping for breath, the words that came out at the very end were words like Micah's of confidence and hope. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. For you and you know what that means it means that if your confidence is in Jesus then the only fire you'll ever experience is the fire in the hands of a skilled refiner 
who is removing the impurities and everything that you don't need to reveal the strength like steel of a new creation that will live forever. It means when the night seems dark, when you feel like you're treated unjustly, when you don't know who to trust, when the world seems against you, you can bear it with patience because your God will hear you and your God will be your salvation. Your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the promises that you give to us, that in the midst of the darkness you are there, and perhaps, Lord, it is there where you shine the brightest. Lord, help us to prepare for those days when things are not easy, when they may be hard, so that your witness can be all the clear, the witness to your glory can be all the clearer. Still our souls in the midst of struggle, that we might praise you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.